Welcome to Growing Your Financial Advisory Practice Podcast by Snap Projections, episode 16. I'm your host, Pavel Braminski, and my goal is to interview experts to provide you with insights, strategies, and actionable tactics that you can start applying to grow your financial advisory practice today. For more information, head over to snapprojections.com slash podcast. Now, let's introduce today's featured guest. Today's guest is Adam Schachter. Adam is a financial advisor with Mandeville Private Client Inc. and a certified financial planner with Mandeville Insurance Services in Ottawa. He offers clients comprehensive financial planning as well as wealth creation and preservation services through a broad range of investment instruments, which include both public and private securities. In 2016 and 17, Adam has been finalist of Young Gun of the Year Award by Wealth Professional. Adam also teaches an internal IROC course to new advisors and advisors transitioning from MFDA to IROC and has built financial planning software in Excel in his free time. And I can attest to that because I've seen a glimpse of it and uh, I was very impressed. And it just so happens Adam and I met at Wealth Professional Summit Leadership and Tech back in May this year, where he was one of the panelists and I thought it would be great to have him on the podcast. So Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Adam, so great to have you on. Let's dive in. So one of the reasons I wanted to invite you is because you are not only a financial advisor, you're also a financial planner who offers comprehensive financial planning. And I know that uh, as a fact that you're truly focused on financial planning in your work. So we'll definitely talk about that. But you know, let's start with uh, where everybody really starts. So tell me about your firm. What do you do and uh, who do you serve? Well, I'm a financial advisor with Mandeville Private Client in Ottawa. And uh, Mandeville is a bit of a smaller independent shop. And um, its chairman is Michael Leachin, who's famous for Berkshire Securities, AIC, uh, and the like. So um, the mantra for Mandeville Private Clients is to democratize opportunity. It's an IROC firm that tries to give access to private and alternative investments to retail investors, as well as have a full scope of, of public securities uh, as well. As far as who we serve... Um, we serve accredited investors as well as their families, and Mandeville provides a, a robo-advisor platform for family members who don't meet minimums, so we can really take in the entire family experience. Excellent. So what kind of robot do you use right now, if I can ask you? It's a, it's a, it's a partnership through Smart Money, and the partnership itself is called Wealthport. Excellent. And it allows, a, it allows advisors to kind of lock in some of the relationships that they might otherwise lose with firms that have account minimums. Excellent. Okay, great. Thanks for explaining that. So I know as an advisor, as I mentioned uh, just a minute before, you put a lot of emphasis on planning. So tell me, so how do you approach financial planning? What is your process? Uh, well, when I meet with people and they choose to become clients, there's an extensive discovery. So uh, I have a lot of conversations with them, trying to get to know them uh, and trying to make it clear that the more that I can get to know them, the more that I can help them. And the more they open up, the more I can get to know them. So my discovery involves both a qualitative and quantitative analysis. So we'll do a risk uh, tolerance questionnaire, which is pretty standard. And we'll also talk about questions like what really, uh, what's the worst investment decision they've ever made? Uh, what makes you stay awake at night as it pertains to money? Uh, what really do you want out of a client and financial advisor relationship? What do you want? out of life and how will money help you get there. So, um, and then I have a seven page fact finder that really drills down into what their spending habits are like, you know, what kind of insurance coverage they have, uh, you know, to do a full comprehensive uh, financial plan for them. And then once we've 
kind of gotten to know who they are, we have uh, open dialogues with their professionals, like their accountants and their lawyers, try to get on the same page as their other professionals and try to gain an understanding of really what the clients want out of life. And once we have all that data, um, that's a lot of work for the client to undertake to provide everything. But once that's over, then my work really begins and, and um, you know, we'll try to put a few strategies in place just for them to review, a few options for them. And uh, we want to make sure that they're taking advantage of any opportunities that might be available or potentially avoiding any obstacles that could be around the corner. And then once they've selected one of the options, we'll, we'll put that plan in place and we'll phase in the recommendations for investment. We'll work with insurance, uh, estate, um, and we'll do this usually with a lawyer and an accountant. And then once the plan is in place, um, you know, common misconception is here's your plan, have a nice life. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, really monitoring the investments sort of on a daily basis, at least taking a look at the accounts. Um, most people rebalance. I do it quarterly and um, I review their financial plan quarterly and I'll send them an email with headers, you know, tax, insurance, and here's kind of what's going on. Um, and then we will do a full review at least annually where they'll come in face to face or we'll do a phone um, or a video interview. Excellent. And just make sure everything's on the same page. And, and you just kind of tinker and update and uh, uh, where, where needed, you know, because there's going to be some changes. So typically, uh, the process all the way from discovery, this probably involves several meetings with clients, all the way until you have those kind of three, maybe a couple of different options uh, to implement before you actually start to, uh, kind of meeting them on an annual basis and, and, and do rebalancing and so on. How much time does it really take you? Does it, is it uh, you know, a couple of months? Is it a couple of weeks? It just depends on the client? Uh, it really depends on the client. I mean, I'm sure people that are listening to this call uh, can probably attest to, I've got some clients who... I say, well, here are, here's what I'd like to do with your investments. Here's a, a couple of recommendations I'd like to do. And they'll say, you know, okay, well, can you send me some information? And I'll say, I can send you as much or as little information as you like. And some people just want to, just want that first email. They don't even look at it and they're fine with it. Others want more information. They want to dissect. And often that takes a little bit longer. And when it does, maybe the landscape has changed. And by the time they've come around and said, okay, fine, I'm okay with these investment selections. Um, maybe there's new ones that I should be making. So, um, you know, every client's different. As far as financial planning goes, to phase everything in it typically takes about three months on average. But some people, are, some people are faster than ever than others. Perfect. Okay, so uh, I see that you're starting with the financial planning process, and it's a heavy process, right? It takes quite a bit of time uh, sometimes for clients uh, to gather all the information for them to make make decisions, but. Uh, but I'm sure there are benefits to starting this way. So what are those benefits? Or if you, if you can talk about some, what are some of the benefits of starting with financial planning process uh, uh, first to an advi- financial advisor practice? Well, there's, there's a, many of them. First off, financial planning clients are way stickier. You have kind of a hand as an advisor. You have a hand in a little bit of everything. You, you understand their tax plan. You're on a first-name basis with their lawyer and their accountant. They see you as... Um, you know, an extended part of their professional team. So that's number one. Number two, to meet with them three or four times uh, before you really put something in place over a span of three or four months really solidifies the relationship early. It locks it down. It's, you know, we're in a, an era right now where we're in, we live in a world of skeptics. And so to, to really be able to gain trust early on is uh, you know an invaluable resource. Word of skeptics. So tell me more about it. What do you mean by that? 
Well, I'll give you an example. So, you know, up until 2008, 2000, up until the financial crisis, people weren't as skeptical in general. And so you could go to a restaurant and the restaurant would have a special, you know, lamb shank on special tonight. It was off the menu, you know, on a chalkboard or something. And before to, before the financial crisis, people with, you know, people weren't as skeptical. They would think, oh, wow, this chef is trying to be creative. Maybe I'll get the lamb shank. But it seems like 2008, 2009 sort of derailed trust. And um, now when you see a special on a board, you think, oh, this restaurant's probably trying to get rid of the lamb shank and they want to sell it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the same way with, with, you know, right across the board, trusting anybody for, uh, you know, especially somebody that, that is responsible for your financials. Um, so it's really tough to sell these days. And so in a world of skeptics, it may be, it may be that, um, you want to incite people to buy or you want to come off as a, as a resource, um, you know, a, a valid source of information. And people really kind of jostle back and forth before they make a decision these days. There's a lot online so they can fact check. So uh, often when I first meet with somebody, I don't do any business whatsoever. I just want to get to know them. I'll let them get to know me. And that's it. Uh, 15, 20 minutes and then goodbye. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of for that reason, which is, listen, I'm not trying to sell you anything. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to get to know you. It's kind of peeling off that layer of skepticism. Um, but I think I really, truly believe it exists today. So you have to invest quite a bit more, you would say, uh, in, the re- in building this relationship because people are skept- more skeptical. And it's, it's kind of interesting because you're, you're definitely younger than some of the advisors that we had on the podcast. So is this because of the demographics? Or is this because of the clients that you, uh, that your, your own clients that you, that you talk to? Do you see that, uh, you know, maybe younger clients, millennials are more skeptical or, or would you say this is kind of all across the board? Um, I think it's right across the board. You don't see a lot of people changing their financial advisor um, a lot, but if they do decide to, uh, they're a little bit more careful right across the board. Now, having said that, I I think the millennial generation, those under 35 years old or whatever, um, are probably more skeptic, uh, more skeptical. They have access to information and they can access it really, really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. So, um, if there's kind of a, but this is right across the board. If there's a hint of sales in your aura, people can, people, people are in tune with that. Mm. So, you know, people, they don't, um, they don't care really what you know until they know that you care. Mm-hmm. I've heard, I, my branch manager told me that once and, and it really rings true. And so to show them that you care is not easy to do on a first meeting. So it's almost like you, you're almost showing them that you you're all in on for them, but you don't really care if uh, you know they're I don't know you're not really trying to sell them on anything. Right. So I've heard a phrase uh, right now that selling has changed and, and really helping helping clients is the new selling right now. Right. Just really trying to help them uh, initially. Well, that's how it should have been originally, I guess. It shouldn't. You know, <laughs> too bad we've come to this, but yeah, for sure. Um, the whole, whole job is really not to sell unless you're dealing with proprietary products, our whole job is to help. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, you know what? I derailed this conversation a little bit because we started with the benefits of financial planning to a financial advisor practice. And you mentioned stick your clients, of course, uh, a positive impact on, on retention and, and building the relationship. Is there anything, let's go back to it. Is there anything else to it? Do you see any other benefits of, of financial planning to a financial advisor practice? 
Yeah, I mean, if you're somebody who gets paid on a fee basis, like a percentage of assets under management, then there's a massive benefit to you as far as pay goes. If I can save somebody $10,000 in tax, it's likely that that will either go back into their account or portfolio and I'll get paid more. Um, the client's happy. Um, so anytime you have these win-win-win situations, uh, it, 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 it's really, it really works out well. It, another thing is, you know, a lot of people that pride themselves on being quote unquote stock pickers, um, you know, I, I, when I teach the, the 90 day training to, uh, prospective IROC advisors, there's a lot of CFAs that are typically in the room, at least three or four of them. And I, I tend to pick on the CFAs a bit. I do have a lot of respect for them. That's a tough exam. Uh, and I don't have my CFA and I'd love to have my CFA, but, uh, when they're in the room, I'll often say, you know, what's the best bank stock to own right now? They'll say, one guy will say it's TD because TD is uh, undervalued. Uh, the other guy will say it's CIBC because, you know, they have good growth potential. And the other guy would say it's Scotia because Scotia is doing a lot of these acquisitions and uh, they're po- poised for long-term growth. And, you know, they've dissected the minutiae. They've, they've, they've looked at the annual reports. They've done their projections. Um, and they, one of them is going to be right. You know, which one is the best one to own for the next 10 years, let's say. One of them is going to be right. Um, they may all be wrong. You know, it remains to be seen. But I can tell you that if you got it wrong and you own TD instead of Scotia, I don't know that it's going to make as much of a difference uh, on a client's bottom line as making sure that, I don't know, it's owned in a TFSA, for example, and uh, the, the dividend distribution is you know tax-free. Excellent. So financial planning is important, basically, in investment selection. That's what you're saying right now. Absolutely. And portfolio construction. And portfolio construction. Excellent. Okay, so uh, you mentioned the course. I would like to uh, uh, dive into this course a little bit more. So c- tell us about this course. Um, uh, what are the main topics that you address? What do you, t- what do you teach advisors? Uh, well, the course was originally designed. I remember when I, I won't name any firm, but I, the previous firm I worked for that I became registered with, I did my Canadian Securities Institute course, which is, I think, like a 60 page or 60 question multiple choice, very easy. And then you do CSI, uh, CSC number two, 60 page multiple choice. Um, and then you do the conduct and practices handbook. You know, I think it's a 40 question multiple choice, very dry material. You know, m- you know, memorize. It's it's a uh, multiple choice. It's it's not um, it's not a too difficult exam. And uh, I had to do a ninety day training afterwards, where I had to actually design a portfolio and submit it to my back office at this firm, and they would evaluate it and see if I was okay to start recommending things to clients. And so I took it really, really seriously. Uh, I did all this research to try to build a portfolio uh, for the first time. I'd never done it before, so it was, it was very rough. But I, I took a lot of time to build that portfolio, and I, I thought I had it kind of... You know, looking back, it was probably terrible, but I thought I had this thing made. And when I submitted it, they sent back and said, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> and it was within seconds, like they barely looked at it. So um, I was tasked with uh, creating the 90-day training for my current firm, Mandeville Private Client. And so um, our firm in Ottawa is fairly highly regarded from a compliance perspective and a best practices perspective by Mandeville Private Client as a firm. So um, I had asked the director of compliance 
uh, chief of compliance, I said, you, you know, I, I'd like to write the course so that, you know, you always praise Ottawa and how great our office is for compliance and best practices. Um, I'd like to write a course that aims to make sure that every Mandeville advisor is like that. You know, anything that I, I'm preaching and teaching here is, is all non-negotiable at our office here. So, uh, and they said that would be great. So, um, this particular course, uh, focuses, it's, um, it focuses on best practices, uh, due diligence, com- uh, what compliance is looking for, how compliance views certain things, just to, you know, compliance is, doesn't have the same job as we do. We don't have the same job as a compliance department. How to be proactive. It starts off with an overarching mantra for every single one of your actions. So, uh, does it make sense for the clients? Does it make sense for the advisor? Does it make sense for the dealer? So if you have an action, you should go through this checklist uh, to see if you should do that action or not. So an example is the phone rings in your office. Does it make sense for the client to answer it? Yes. Does it make sense for the advisor? Yes. Does it make sense for the firm or dealer? Yes. Okay, go ahead and answer the phone. Um, That's kind of the the way to kind of uh, look at it. Approach it. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about compliance since we're talking about compliance right now. So, what uh, um, what can you what can you do right now? Uh, here's the question: What can you do right now to stay compliant with really the minimum amount of effort? Because uh, we hear all the time from from advisors that compliance uh, are just uh, it, it's it's really tough to meet the requirements, and, and it's it's just so much time that goes into it, right? So it's so difficult even for new people to start a business without even maybe potentially buying a book of business because of compliance. So what can what can you do? Is there a way for us to stay compliant with with uh, a small amount of effort or, or minimum of, uh, amount of effort? Well, for those listening right now, I'm not getting myself into trouble at all here. Okay, like, that's not going to happen. Good that's that. good. This um, is just pri- your but, private opinion, <laughs> and this is just uh, just a, just a, just a conversation. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I, I, the, be- the best thing you can do with compliance is make friends with them. If you are unsure about anything, email them, tell them what you're looking to do, and get a response back from them, an opinion. Um, and I say email because then it's documented. So if they come back and say, "Well, I never told you that," then you have it written down. Um, I believe the acronym CYA is uh, a good thing to go by. I don't know if I can say that on the podcast, but cover your A. Okay. And uh, what I mean by that is, you know, you, you call a client and you discuss a few things, send them a follow-up email. You want to go even further overboard, send them a read receipt so that you know that they've read it and you can prove it. Um, the, the, what, I, what I preach in this particular course and training is think that think about think that you're going to get sued no matter what. And if you get sued by a client, you're going to lose because that's just the way things work. Um, it, the trick is if when you get sued to lose as little as possible. So if you have all these supporting documents to back you up, maybe it settles out of court for a very very small amount, and you get to keep your job and you get to keep your career. Um, but that's kind of the way that you should be covering yourself. So, um, when, uh, when you place a trade for a client, everything should be documented. What, what, uh, what time you spoke to the client, um, what was discussed, any fees involved, the client understands the fees, the client understands the taxes involved and, and understands that you're placing a day order limit market order, and then you place the trade. Um, anytime, any discussions you have with the client regarding financial planning, whether that's insurance, investments, uh, tax, 
Um, all that stuff should be documented. So you have proper note taking. Um, and I, I don't know about most people, but I, I discuss fees and I do a risk tolerance questionnaire in every annual meeting. So, um, I, I really don't want a regulator coming up to me and saying, well, why did you buy that investment for this person? They're unemployed. And I want, I'll say, well, I didn't know that. <laughs> like they didn't tell me that. And, and the, the regulator or the compliance department is going to say, well, it's your job to know that. You really do have to be proactive with making sure information is up to date and making sure that it's documented as such. And even further, uh, if you can timestamp your notes, so uh, we use a, a system where we can put in our notes and then once we hit confirm, we can't go in and change them. So they're timestamped. Uh, again, that's not going to get you to win in court, but you'll lose little, right? Right. So uh, documentation, documentation, documentation. Another thing is uh, due diligence. Um, most compliance departments and regulators, they don't want to get into your business to, to know how you pick certain investment selections. Do you use a discounted cash flow model? They don't care. They don't even know what that is. What they want to know is that you have a reason for why you picked what you did. So if you can show that um, in every odd year, 2011, 2013, 15, 17, in every odd year, every single annual report that comes out from companies, all the ones that are that have the cover that are the color blue, outperform. And that's why I went with this company. That's fine. As long as you can show that. <laughs> it doesn't matter. But you have to have that documented as such. Perfect. So let's leave compliance maybe for a second. And again, as part of the disclaimer, this isn't uh, this wasn't legal advice uh, either from from Adam for myself. So if you uh, you you need to seek your own your own legal counsel if you have any compliance uh, kind of questions. So, uh, but let's go to the other aspect of um, of your of your course. I think there's another aspect um, of that, and, and uh, there's uh, some advisors are thinking about transitioning from MFDA to IROC. So, uh, you know, and I think you were talking about the pros and cons. And uh, so, let's talk a little bit about that. What? Why would it make sense maybe for somebody to transition from MFDA to IROC? Um, well, I mean, it depends how they run their practice. And my view is, you know, if I was, uh, if I hired somebody to build a deck in my backyard, like a carpenter, and, you know, the person showed up and all they had was a hammer and nails, and that's it. I'm not saying that they would do a poor job. They may do an excellent job. But if I had someone who came with a nail gun and a leveler and all these different tools, um, it doesn't mean that they're going to do a better job either. But the likelihood of them doing a better job increases. And on the FDA side, uh, you're kind of limited to mutual funds and to some degree, some exchange traded funds. Uh, and that's pretty much it. And uh, on the IROC side, it kind of just opens it up where you have way more tools in your toolbox. And just to reiterate, it doesn't mean that if you have more tools, you're going to do better. It just increases the odds that you will do better. Excellent. So in terms of teaching people, uh, it, sometimes it's, it's, it's kind of interesting to find the, the different things or not the some things. Did you, did you learn anything yourself through teaching uh, advisors uh, the course? Well, this particular course, um, I, I kind of learned a little bit about how advisors work. Um, and in doing this, you, you get a lot of different personalities, people that are 65 years old and have been in the business for a long time, uh, people that are um, brand new associates, you know, right out of, out of university or college. So you have a lot of different personalities um, and uh, a lot of people that are have been in the business a long time and have been successful at it. Um, 
don't really, they're not as adaptable to change. So trying to learn new methods to kind of, you know, either uh, just to reach out to them and to connect with those kinds of people, um, that really helps. Where I find I, uh, sorry to get off track here, but I also teach the, the CFP capstone course through the Business Career College. And the capstone course has a submission of a 70-page financial plan from people all over Canada that come into my email. And to see the same case study interpreted so many different ways from so many different advisors, I learn a ton marking these things and grading them. Like, I mean, a ton. Some of the creative things that some students come up with um, as far as what they want to do, um, how they see this particular situation, how they're going to address it, what the consequences are. Uh, it's really, really, uh, uh, you know, wonderful for me to kind of get a lot of broad different ideas and, um, and perspectives. That's awesome to, to hear. And one thing I should say as well is as advisors, we rarely, rarely, rarely get to talk with other advisors. So, um, you know, the opportunity to teach other advisors and interact with them on a daily basis is, uh, is great because you really get to bounce ideas and learn from them. Well, that's, that's, that's great to hear. I mean, the one thing, uh, uh, when, when you're actually trying to learn, uh, you you can learn a lot through teaching. So that's, that's a great, great example. And, and this is interesting what you said that about, uh, about advisors not talking to each other. And it's one of the reasons for, for, for this podcast as well is just to bring out the people who, uh, and, and show people that, um, what, what, uh, what, what, people that are actually doing something interesting and, and that can actually bring value and, and, and advisors can actually have, uh, have uh listen to, to their stories. Yeah, this is great. You know, the only other chance I get to be with other advisors is when I go on some sort of a conference, you know, a roadshow or something, and I sit at a table and there's nine other people at my table. But it tends to be more like kind of puffy as opposed to collaborative. People are kind of, you know, trying to showcase how, you know, good they are and what they do and how their firm is great. And it doesn't seem to be as uh, as open to collaboration typically. It's a different different context. So let's go back to some of the clients. I'd like to kind of learn a little bit more. Uh, when you look at your client or your own clients, what would you say about uh, your clients? Who are your ideal clients? Uh, well, I tend to gravitate towards self-employed business owners because that's what I am. Um, and then you know, if they're I'm 37, so if they're kind of in, in that age range, then um, it, it seems to be kind of a nice fit. But I also have this weird subset of 55 year olds that. Um, gravitate towards me because their advisor has either retired or whatever uh, is leaving the business and um, they want somebody younger but not too young if that makes sense so I, I, I don't know I've kind of gotten to a, a dichotomy with a weird age um, as far as uh, who they are again a lot of them are self-employed business owners and uh, also professional incorporated like lawyers and doctors and I also take on their families or their friends if they refer close friends uh, and colleagues. As far as, uh, as I guess that's kind of who I gravitate to. Excellent. So uh, let's maybe talk about uh, how do you acquire those clients? I mean, maybe you can share some tips uh, for with uh, and, and share some tips with other advisors. So uh, let's say let's focus maybe on business owners, uh, age you know around let's say you know thirty seven to maybe I don't know forty seven. Let's say or plus minus five years. Sure. What is the best uh, tactic, or if, if you're going to share the one you know one secret on the podcast, what would that be? <laughs> okay, so I actually shared this on the panel um, at the Wealth Professional Summit. Uh, it's it was a technology summit that we were supposed to be talking about, and everybody 
that seems to want to adopt technology into their marketing and prospecting seems to think that they can kind of just spew out a bunch of stuff to the world and see what sticks. But uh, nobody's really making cold calls and knocking on doors anymore. (laughs) So if there's one tip I can give people, it's that you have zero competition in that space. Uh, nobody's really doing it anymore. Excellent. So uh, business owners, business owners is a great one because if you want to give them a call or if you want to knock on their door, you know exactly where they are all day. Huh. And how do you how do you talk to them? How do you approach them? Do you just show up and say, "This is what I do," and you know I, we can work together? How do you do that? Um, it's a bit cheeky. I ask them. Uh, I'll ask them for a job, <laughs> and I'll have my resume, which is just my marketing material. Um, like I'll, I'll have an actual resume of my history and kind of my experience and then i have a marketing folder that i provide as well and i'm asking them for a job which is really what a financial advisor is doing anyway right you're you want to work for someone so uh anytime someone pays someone else for work i feel like you know they're either on contract or employee basis so i'm just asking them for a job and they kind of are a little off put you know we're not hiring sorry um no this is a construction yard there's no reason for you to be in a suit And I was like, no, 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 no. I just, I would like to be hired by you as your financial advisor. Um, and I would like to add more value to you and your family. And I would like you to pay less than what you're currently paying for less. And here's why. You know, if I could, if I could increase your income and reduce your costs and taxes, would that be compelling enough to use me? instead of who you're currently using. And who they're currently using is usually um, a bank. Okay, so there's no competition really, and this is your way in. That's awesome, that's fantastic. So thanks so much for sharing that. So let's uh, talk about uh, a few other things maybe. Uh, so when you look at the broad uh, kind of market, where advisors do you think can add most value to their clients right now? Um, to add most value? Well, it's really tough because we've had like a 10-year bull run in the investment world. The biggest value that advisors can give to their clients is to keep them invested when this run, and I don't know when it's going to end, but when it eventually runs its course, that's the biggest value is to, to keep them invested. And to be able to do that, they have to trust you. So if they're going to trust you, that uh, trust is something that's earned over a long period of time. So I would say that you just have to kind of continue to engage um, I'll do, uh, at our office, we call them lifeboat drills. Um, Powell, do you mind if I do one with you right now? Let's do it. Okay. So you now there's like the typical risk tolerance questionnaire. And, you know, clients will look at four different graphs and pick the one that they think is the most representative of them. Or they'll get a qualitative, do you consider yourself high, medium, or low risk? Everyone's going to say medium because it's the one in the middle, right? Right. Okay. So I'll try to take it a step further. Um, So let's say, Pablo, you are 63 years old. Imagine myself. <laughs> yeah, you have 63, right? And uh, you, you're, you want to retire at 65, and you've worked really hard to make sure that you retire at age 65. And you've saved up and invested, and you're working with somebody, an advisor, and now you have $1 million in assets under management, okay? Perfect. And to you, that represents about $50,000 a year of income, right? 5%, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. So you're thinking, okay, I've got CPP, I've got old age security, 
my wife has GPP and OAS. We've got other assets here. We're going to downsize all this stuff. But, but my investments, my liquid investments that are sitting with my advisor, it's a million dollars, it's $50,000 a year. That's what I'm looking most forward to because that's my play money. I'm going to go on vacations. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. All this stuff has been outlined to you qualitatively what your retirement is going to look like. Okay? Million dollars. Two months later, your portfolio is worth $900,000. What do you do? You call your advisor. Your advisor has told you that things fluctuate. It just hasn't done this in a while and you're starting to feel a little weird about it. You know what? You're going to call. You decide you're going to give them you're going to give him a call. You call your advisor. Hey, I know that things go up and down, you know, million dollars to 900,000. Like I, I feel like I'm down like a hundred thousand dollars. The advisor says, yeah, no, you're right. Things do go up and down. Um, just kind of play it cool. We've been through these kinds of things before. Um, so we're used to them and you're convinced the advisor convinces you that everything is okay. And, and there's, you know, just wait it out. These kinds of things happen. No problem. A month later, it's down to 800000 So you're starting to feel a little bit queasy. Maybe the advisor calls you this time because he knows that you called him last time or her last time. And the advisor says to you, listen, we're down 20% here. And you say, well, that's $200,000. Like I'm looking at my retirement. What used to be $50,000 a year is now $40,000 a year. So I'm like one less vacation a year kind of thing. I can deal with that. But like, I'm not happy. this is starting to get a little uncomfortable here. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And are you starting to feel a little uncomfortable, Powell? You know what? Just first of all, it's really hard to imagine yourself being being sixty three years old. But you know, <laughs> I would assume I would be very, very uncomfortable, right? Because I'm not yeah. working anymore, right? Or um, I, I'm, you know, maybe I have to do just the last two years, and that's it. And but when I retire, there's more, no more income. Maybe there's CPP, and maybe there's RAS, but that's it, right? Mm-hmm. So this is a little bit. So so now you've gotten the call from the advisor. The advisor says, "Listen, I know you're uncomfortable." Um, and I, this is why you've hired me is because I'm supposed to get you through these situations. And you may think that you want to just lock everything in at $40,000 a year because you don't want it to go down even further. But I'm telling you, we're going to do even better. We're going to buy more. We're going to sell some of your fixed income and we're going to buy some equity because of this drop. We're going to take advantage of this. And you say, I don't know, you know, this is, you know it's already down. Uh, what if it goes down further? The advisor says, listen, would you rather buy when it's down or buy when it's up? It's down. Let's buy low. The advisor convinces you to rebalance. You do it. So fine. That conversation happens. You agree. A month later, it's down to 700000 hmm. I guess where I'm getting at is I tell every client this particular scenario because I feel like it's better than a risk or a volatility questionnaire because I need to know where that point is. I need to know exactly where that pivot point is, how much money until you, you cannot be convinced otherwise. I, I won't be able to convince you. You've lost all trust. When is that going to be? Is it going to be at 700? Is it going to be at 600? Is it going to be at 900,000? Where is it going to be? Because if we get to the point where you've lost trust and um, anything that I recommend, you're just going to say, nope, you know what? I'm going, I, I, I just want to, you know, I'm at $600,000 now. I'm going to lock in my $30,000 a year. I can deal with that. That's a permanent loss at that point. So I need to know where that pivot point is so that we never get to that point. And then I can build a portfolio that doesn't get to that point, right? I think that's a very powerful illustration. And the thing is, the other thing is we mentioned earlier that assessing risk on an annual basis is so critical because 
the tolerance for people and their risk tolerance is going to change over time. My tolerance right now for risk is completely different when, for example, between, let's say, I'm you know, pretty much the same age as you, uh, and so, you know, you're older maybe, but, uh, uh, but uh, the question is, you know, what will be my risk tolerance when I'm 63? It will be different. And the other thing is, I think what just... Uh, uh, occurred to me is that it's important for the advisor to build this relationship and maybe uh, uh, if there is a downturn earlier, let's say there was 2008, 2009, right? And I remember that. And I remember, for example, purchasing Apple stock at a time for, I, I think, $80 uh, at a time. And, and that was actually a really one of the, you know, one of the best decisions I've made. For Canadian, Canadian bank? Right. Uh, no. This. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So. So if I if I have this kind of history and if the advisor builds this with with uh, with me this history over time, I'm going to be much more likely to trust the advisor. And the, but the other thing is, if in the absence of the of this history, I think I think the, the story that you're telling right now, the exercise that you do with a client, is so powerful because it allows them to go through this. I can imagine the situation uh, before without having this. You know, let's say 10, 15 years of history and maybe having one downturn. In the past, right? But I mean, you still have to go through the motions and fill out that risk tolerance questionnaire. I just think that clients have a better understanding of volatility when you go through uh, like a fire drill lifeboat scenario like that. Um, and I think it's a lot more telling for the advisor. It, it helps the advisor to know when that pivot point is. I mean, I, I don't want clients to get there, right? So if you can't tolerate a twenty-five percent drop in your portfolio, even though it's temporary, that's just just volatility it's just systematic market risk um if you can't tolerate it then fine we won't get there it'll never we'll never get to that point then you're going to sacrifice things and i'll I'll explain that to people you're going to sacrifice potential long-term uh higher rates of return but you know what better to sacrifice those longer-term rates of return and you know still continue to grow and not uh you know cannibalize your account by by permanent losses Excellent. So before we wrap up here, let's, there's a couple of other questions. I noticed that you are very direct in your communication with, with clients and other, other professionals as well. So tell me, does it, does it help? Uh, did it even backfire on you or, or being direct with clients actually is, is helpful? No, it definitely is a double-edged sword. But you know what? In, uh, in all facets of life, if you're not going to be you, then you're not going to be happy, right? So take it or leave it. It's just, uh, I, I'm really direct with people, really direct with students, really direct with clients and some people that will be in tune with and some people that will not be in tune with, but, uh, far from me to change how I am. And, uh, if I'm in tune with some people, that's great. And if I'm not, that's fine too. Uh, we can't expect to be all things to all people. So, um, you know, there's always going to be people that just don't like what you have to offer. And there's always going to be people that do. So I don't really worry about that stuff, but definitely backfires a lot. It can have backfire, but it's useful if you actually, if you can actually pull it off. Okay. So uh, one other thing I want to talk to you about is educating clients. And I think you mentioned one time in our conversations, it's just, it's kind of your first line of defense. Uh, why educating clients is important? Well, I educate clients um, mostly on how things work so that they're informed consumers. Um, so when I say educating clients, I want them to know how things, uh, I want them to know how they pay me. I want them to know how I kind of pick investments. I want them to be able to communicate that to other people for two reasons. The first one is advocacy for referrals. You know, um, somebody may say in passing a a colleague at the water cooler, Mm -hmm. man, I just took a look at my fees from my advisor or bank or whatever. 
And and then if it's my client that's on the other end of that conversation, they'll say, well, my advisor charges me blah, 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 blah. And they'll know exactly what that is. So that's number one. Number two, if they're about to be poached by another advisor, I want them to be able to sniff out the BS, if there is any. Um, I want them, you know, if that advisor, I'll tell clients that uh, advisors shouldn't talk about rates of return, right? It doesn't make sense because rates of return are based on what your portfolio allocation is going to be. Uh, and so to talk about rate of return, um, you know, as, a, as an advisor, before knowing what the client's going to be invested in doesn't make any sense, really. So I'll try to educate clients on that so that if they ever get approached and, and, and spoken to like that, um, if they ever get approached and talked to about, you know, mutual funds and DSC and so I, I just want clients to know exactly what they pay me and to know exactly what I provide them in return. And then once, they're, once they know those two things, they can now assess value, which is, is what I'm paying worth what I'm getting in return? And if they can assess value, then they can do that elsewhere. And if they can do that elsewhere and they can find better value elsewhere, then I would go elsewhere too. So I don't blame them if they leave for that reason, but I don't want them leaving for any other reason. Excellent. And it comes back to being direct and, and really clearly communicating with clients, which is awesome. So Adam, this podcast is all about growing your financial advisory practice. Do you have any parting words of wisdom for the listeners? Oh, man. Oh, I'm still growing a practice. So my parting words are probably, if there's any advice that anybody listening can give me, I'm open to it. Uh, never stop uh, trying to learn, trying to improve in all facets of life. Awesome advice. So never too old to learn, never too young to teach. So that's, that's an awesome piece of advice. So Adam, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, um, how would they do that? What's the best way to reach you? Um, the best way is by email. It's A Schachter. So that's A-S-C-H-A-C-T-E-R at mandevillepc.com. Or you can just find my information on the website, uh, Adam Schachter, Financial Advisor Ottawa. The website is adamschachter.com. Wonderful. Adam, thanks for coming on the show and sharing a lot of valuable advice. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. And that's it for this episode. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at podcast at snapprojections.com. And if you're enjoying the show and want more of the amazing guests sharing incredibly valuable knowledge, head over to iTunes and leave us a great review, which helps us get discovered. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.